Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Between 1958 and 1962, English Electric built 200 Class 40 diesel locomotives. For a while, they were the pride of British Rail's early diesel fleet. Initially used as express passenger trains, they eventually were replaced by more powerful locomotives and were gradually relegated to secondary passenger and freight services. Here, they worked for many years, with the final locomotives eventually being retired from regular service in 1985. The most famous of the class 40s was numbered D326. She had what was described by some as a chequered history and was regarded by many railwaymen as a jinxed loco. In August 1964, a second man was electrocuted when he climbed out of the doors on top of the nose of the engine to wash the windows. In 1965, she suffered total brake failure at Birmingham New Street and hit the rear of a freight train injuring the guard. And she was also involved in an accident on Boxing Day 1962 which led to the death of 18 passengers. D326 was eventually renumbered 40126 and was withdrawn from service in February 1984. Upon withdrawal, the locomotive was offered to the National Railway Museum at York as an exhibit loco regarding its past history. The museum, however, declined, and she was reduced to a pile of scrap metal at Doncaster Works with an almost indecent haste. Why? Well, chiefly to stop any looting souvenir hunters. Because D326 was the locomotive that stood front and centre of what would become known as the Great Train Robbery. A robbery that took less than 30 minutes from start to finish, spread over a distance of 28 miles, and would net the gang involved the equivalent of over £50 million in today's money. The gang consisted of 15 members, four of which still to this day were never caught, their names not even known. The robbery was immediately dubbed the crime of the century and is still spoken about today for not only the planning and the preciseness of the raid, but also the mistakes and the bungling of the gang that led to their arrest. Well, for some that is. For in addition to this, there's the story of those that evaded capture for nearly 50 years, becoming celebrities halfway around the globe. There is also the story of the police that were involved, the flying squad determined to capture those responsible at any cost, and the story of the families of the police officers, the gang and the victims. The audacity and the scale of the robbery fascinated the country, sticking two fingers up to the establishment as details unfolded in the daily newspapers and TV reports. 
And even today, there remains this almost romantic notion of the cheeky gang of South London crooks that wouldn't hurt anyone being punished by harsh prison sentences. But as we will discover, people did get hurt. And as well as capturing the public's imagination, it horrified them in equal measure. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the Great Train Robbery. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Train robberies were not common practice before 1962, but they certainly weren't unknown either. In the run-up to the Great Train Robbery in August 1962, a daring series of raids involving trains would take place, chiefly in the south of England. The gang responsible would become known as the South Coast Raiders. On August the 18th, 1960, railway guard Reginald Scammell was overpowered on an afternoon express between Brighton and London by four men with flower bags over their heads. They escaped with £8,000 worth of registered packages ripped out of a dozen mailbags and just walked away at Victoria with the loot in suitcases. An even more daring robbery was to take place a month later. Using a false key, three masked men entered the guards van of the evening Victoria to Brighton semi-fast service. As the train approached Patcham, they overpowered the guard, tied him up and rifled through the mailbags. 
The gang knew exactly what they were after, swiftly selecting six mailbags that contained registered parcels. As the train approached the tunnel at Patcham, a fellow gang member waiting on the line switched the signal from green to red. The train stopped, the robbers threw the bags onto the track, jumped down from the train and scrambled over the embankment to a waiting getaway car. The rain-soaked mailbags will be found later in a ditch near Lewis. All of the registered packets, including £9,000 worth of new pound notes on their way to banks in Brighton, have been removed. Two months later, another guard was attacked and tied up, this time on the Hastings route. The guard, 61-year-old Alfred Reynolds, fell victim to a gang just north of Haywards Heath en route to Victoria Station. And so, following protests from the guards that worked on the Brighton line, British Rail agreed to fit bolts and chains to the mail vans. And for a while that seemed to do the trick. For well over a year there were no more incidents. But on the 11th of April 1962, five men posing as railwaymen made a daring midnight mail snatch at Brighton station. At 11.40pm they casually picked out a buff labelled white bag containing registered mail from a stack of post bags lying on the platform. The bags have been unloaded from the 1028 train from Victoria. Although the thieves wearing peak caps and dark uniforms were challenged by a postman, one of them said, it's alright mate, we'll look after this one, it's ours. In the bag were 222 registered items, mostly banknotes, worth about £300,000 in today's money. Picking it up, they strolled to the end of Platform 5, dropped down onto the lines and disappeared into the mist towards New England Road. The operation took seven minutes from start to finish. Only four months later, in August, bandits struck again. This time, a new method was used. Fire. The men set light to an empty compartment of the 1028 Wednesday night train from Victoria to Brighton. The blaze was seen when the train pulled into Preston Park. Passengers were ordered out and the electric current was switched off. Directly the guard left the van to help extinguish the flames. The rest of the gang stole two mailbags and walked away unchallenged to a getaway car. When police reconstructed the crime it became clear that one of the men had left a delayed action firebomb in the train when he got out at Haywards Heath. Eventually the South Coast Raiders would join forces with an equally daring group of South London villains to form what will become known as the Great Train Robbers. The South London gang, led by Bruce Reynolds, had previously had mixed success in their illegal activities. And for a short while, there will be a significant let-up in train-based robberies that will be significantly halted with the mother of them all on August the 8th, 1963. Bruce Reynolds, Charlie Wilson, Buster Edwards, Gordon Goody and Roy James were all working class lads from London who just wanted a taste of the high life. 
Various scams and schemes in their youth had developed from smash-and-grab raids and cat burglary to full-on bank robberies. They had tried their luck at train robbing with varying degrees of success, but in August 1962, Charlie was introduced by friends of his in Middlesex to a man who could provide information that would lead to the gang's most daring raid to date. A raid that, if successful, could net them all a sum of money they couldn't even dream about and could potentially lead to a life of retirement away from the cold grey English skies. Charlie was introduced to a man who worked at Comet House at London Airport, positioned about 15 miles from the centre of the capital. Comet House was the administrative offices of BOAC, and over the course of their conversation, this man would reveal details to Charlie about the wages and their movements for the entire airline staff. Comet House was the largest of a set of buildings that was comprised of offices, service hangars and warehouses that were stretched along the south side of the airport. A couple of hundred yards from Comet House, also within the perimeter of the airport, was a branch of Barclays Bank. Every Tuesday morning, a van containing two security guards followed by three cashiers would leave the bank and deliver a large box containing the wages of the airline staff. Wages that were estimated to be as much as three to four hundred thousand pounds, the equivalent of a staggering eight million by today's standards. And despite the distance from the bank to Comet House being no more than a few hundred yards, often the van would be escorted by a police car. Charlie's informer had originally pictured stealing the money from the vault in the bank itself before it even made its way to the van. But after discussing the situation with Gordon Goody, it was decided that a snatch would be the best option. And so, they began to assemble some of the best thieves in London. First in was Buster Edwards. But before the gang could commit themselves any further, the decision was made to see for themselves just how easy or how hard it would actually be to pull this off. So Gordon and Buster, dressed accordingly in sober suits, drove out together to London Airport on a Tuesday morning and casually walked into Comet House. Buster took the lift to the top floor, while Gordon waited in the reception lobby. From his vantage point in the gents' toilet, Buster could see the entrance to the bank. He watched patiently as he witnessed the security van pull up to the bank and then carefully timed it along its brief journey to Comet House. Gordon watched patiently from the lobby, observing every movement of the security guards as they unloaded the heavy wages box onto a trolley. And it was here that the plan began to be formed. First, the heavy mob would enter the building disguised as city gents complete with suits and bowler hats. They would do exactly what Buster had done and take the lift to the top floor before hiding in the gents' cloakroom. After watching the van leave the bank, they would quickly take the lift back down to the entrance lobby, bursting out of the lift as the guards were waiting for it. Getaway vehicles would be driven by Mickey Ball and Roy James who would be waiting in two Jags in the front car park dressed as chauffeurs. The escape route would avoid the main entrance by following the perimeter fence and crashing through one of the gates. 
This gate was to be the responsibility of Gordon Goody, who sent a friend into various ironmongers to ask for bolt cutters. Not as common an item back then as they are today. Eventually ending up with two pairs, Gordon and Buster drove back to the airport the night before the robbery and cut the chain from the gate. Bruce Reynolds ensured that a flat would be made available to meet up after the raid and called upon ex-paratrooper Jimmy White who was more than happy to help out. Also on board now was another friend Harry Booth and Bruce's brother-in-law John Daly brought in as reserve driver. And so, on Tuesday the 20th of November, the gang set out and took up their positions in and around Comet House by 9 in the morning. Everything was set. Nothing could go wrong. Mickey and Roy, disguised as chauffeurs, were in position in the Jags. Behind them, hiding behind newspapers and dressed as city gents, sat Bruce and a friend of Gordon's, Dennis Marlowe. On their laps, rolled up umbrellas whose handles had been replaced with iron bars. Waiting up on the fifth floor, also dressed in city suits with balaclava masks rolled up underneath various hats, were Gordon, Charlie and Harry Booth. Buster stood watch at the toilet window waiting for the arrival of the security van, with Bill Jennings at the lift waiting for his signal. It was all going to plan. That was until Buster spotted the only thing that could have scuppered the whole operation. There, closely behind the security van, followed a police car. So that was it. The lads quietly slipped out of the building and drove off back to London in the two Jaguars. It wasn't totally unexpected. After all, they'd been warned that sometimes there'd be a police escort. But not to worry. Three nights later, on the Friday, they drove back to check the gate. The chain had now been replaced. What could this mean? Any security guard with an ounce of sense should have sussed that a raid was being planned. So, to be on the safe side, rather than cutting the chain again, the Chiswick metalsmith who had fashioned the iron bars for them in the umbrellas made a new chain with a false link that could be pulled apart quite easily. That should do it. Sit tight over the weekend and hit Comet House on the following Tuesday the 27th of November. In an almost carbon copy of the previous week, the gang were ready and in place by 9am. Roy, Mickey, Bruce and Dennis waiting in the cars, the rest of them upstairs. Gordon had dyed his hair black, stuck on a false moustache and was wearing a check cap. Bill and Buster, pinstripe suits and bowler hats. And as for weapons, well, no guns. Each of them had hidden their own favourite kosh down the legs of their trousers or in the umbrellas. Charlie had a length of cable bound up with tape, Buster a foot long length of one and a quarter inch pipe spring, and Gordon a truncheon that he'd somehow acquired whilst in Spain. The elderly cloakroom attendant was hanging about and appeared curious as to why Buster should be hanging around the urinal for so long. Of course this was the best view from the window, so the others actively tried to distract the attendant by over dramatically combing their hair or washing their hands and straightening their ties. And then, things began to move. The van moved away, this time without a police escort. Mm -hmm. 
Buster signalled to Bill to call the lift up to the fifth floor. The lift arrived. Bill turned down the switch to hold it there, swiftly followed by the others. Buster moved over to a window that overlooked the entrance, and the seconds ticked by. No sign of the van. Where was it? Passing time was punctuated by the pinging sound in the lift as people on different floors attempted to summon it. Buster, what's going on? demanded Bill. I don't know, it should be here by now. And then five floors below, they saw the roof of the van pass by. Quickly, they all rushed into the lift. Bill released the switch and pressed the button for the ground floor. Down they went. Fourth floor. Third floor. But wait. It stopped. Panicking, in case their faces were seen, the gang turned away from the door. The door opened. No one there. Whoever had called the lift must have got fed up and took the stairs instead. Doors closed. Second floor. First floor. Incredibly, the doors opened again and again. No one there. Finally, the doors closed once more, and as the lift made its way at last to the ground floor, the gang reached under their hats and pulled down the stocking masks and balaclavas to cover their faces. Their gloved hands pulled out their coshes, and out they rushed. By all accounts, a brutal attack followed. Immediately, Harry and Bill ran towards the wages box. At the same time, Charlie and Gordon set upon the two guards that were holding it. One fell to the floor immediately after being coshed behind the ear. The other deftly dodged a strike and attempted to escape through the front door. He was soon knocked down by a cracking blow from one of the steel umbrellas that were being wielded by either Bruce or Dennis. That was the guards dealt with, now the cashiers. Bang! One of them hit the deck after being struck with a blow. Bang! The other one just stood there grinning at Buster, seemingly paralysed with fear. Buster smashed him again on the head with the foot-long pipe spring. It was a nasty cracking sound as his skull split open, blood pouring from his scalp as he hit the floor. By now, Bill and Harry were lugging the box towards the door. The two Jaguars reversed, tyres screeching. They threw the box into the open boot of the first car driven by Mickey as the rest of the heavies backed out with their coshes still raised. Bill, Harry and Dennis jumped into the first car and the others leapt into the second which was driven by Roy and off they sped. Through the car park, onto the narrow road that ran around the perimeter, along the inside of the fence and towards the gate. Charlie and Buster both leapt out armed with the two pairs of bolt cutters. In their haste they couldn't find the specially adapted link on the chain so chose to cut through one of the normal strength links instead. And they were off, narrowly missing several collisions along the way as they made their escape. Arriving at a pre-prepared garage, they dumped the jags, leaving the bolt cutters on the back seats. The money was thrown into the back of a minivan, 
and Roy jumped in the front with it heading off to Norbury. Gordon and Roy, who had planned to escape by motorbike, had to resort to the London Underground when the bike failed to start. Buster jumped on a bus and headed home before eventually meeting the others at Jimmy White's flat. netted the gang £62,000 in banknotes. But it was not the three to 400000 they was expecting. Although £62,000 in 1962 is the equivalent of £1.2 million today. The gang were dubbed the City Gents by the nation's press and the police moved in quickly as the flying squad were almost certain they knew who was behind the robbery. Most of the gang were pulled in the following day but as witnesses could not identify them, they were soon released. Further investigations by the police led to another identity parade on the 12th of December. Here, Gordon Goody and Mickey Ball were not so lucky and were picked out. In a bizarre twist of fate, the gang were lined up in a version of the city gent disguises, and Mickey Ball was mistaken for Bill Jennings. Now Mickey, having only been one of the getaway drivers, didn't want to be blamed for the violence that took place on that day. Bursting into tears, he confessed that he was guilty, but begged the police officers to believe he was only the driver and not some vicious thug. Further identity parades later that week led to Gordon and Charlie also being identified. It's at this point in the story that we first meet Brian Field of James and Wheater solicitors. Field was asked to help defend Gordon Goody and would go on to be one of the integral members of the Great Train Robbery Gang. Brian Field was an invaluable asset to any crook. For Brian Field was as bent and as crooked as they come. Usually, a robbery of this magnitude and the level of violence involved would mean no chance of any of the accused getting bail. But with the help of some of Charlie's friends in the criminal underworld, it proved to be no problem whatsoever. Mickey Ball, who had pleaded guilty, was remanded at Brixton Prison. For the others, there was a complex series of alibi building and bribery before and during the trial. Gordon Goody's elaborate alibi involved him visiting his tailor on the morning of the robbery, one witness. Followed by popping into a nearby cafe where he inadvertently spilt coffee on one of the patrons there, another witness. All completely untrue, of course. Just in case it didn't work, one genuine witness claimed to have seen Goody at Comet House from the top of a double-decker bus on the day of the crime. Goody went as far as hiring a double-decker bus and a photographer to take pictures of the car park to prove that it wouldn't be possible. When the trial eventually opened at the Old Bailey, Charlie Wilson was immediately acquitted on the direction of the judge as two witnesses had sworn that they had seen him in two different places at the same time. For Gordon Goody, however, his extravagant alibi proved a little too hard to swallow, with genuine witnesses convinced they'd seen him there that morning. So, what else would any self-respecting and, let's face it, guilty criminal therefore resort to? Easy, bribe the jury. On the final day of the trial, Gordon and Buster set out in their car and followed one of the jurors. 
They'd had their eye on him for some time, having spotted what they thought could potentially be an easy target. Pulling up beside him, near his house in Finchley, Gordon wound down the window and offered the man a lift. Surprisingly, without really realising who was behind the wheel, the man got in. Fancy seeing you here, said Gordon. Going to court? Then the penny dropped. But still, the juror was totally unfazed by the whole incident. As they continued their journey, chatting about the trial, the juror revealed that he'd spent some time in prison himself. The conversation ended in a multi-storey car park near the Old Bailey. Gordon offered the man £400 if he could bring in a not guilty verdict. The man promised that he would, shook Gordon's hand, but then flatly turned down the money. That morning, the judge finalised his summing up and dismissed the jury. Twice they returned, unable to bring in a unanimous verdict. There was no alternative but for the judge to order a retrial. Mickey Ball, however, wasn't so lucky. Having pleaded guilty, he was sentenced to five years in prison. But yet, there was still a lot of evidence against Gordon. He might not be so lucky this time. Gordon had paid out a large sum of money to his solicitor friend Brian Field, and who knows, next time he might not be so fortunate in finding a juror so willing to help out. There was only one solution, as far as Gordon could see, nobble the evidence and the odd witness at the same time. So once again, Buster and Gordon got in their car and drove off to Harrow. Here, Buster was dropped off at the witness's house. He told the man exactly who he was and set up a meeting with him and Gordon in the pub down the road. Again, surprisingly, the witness was more than willing to go along with the idea. All he had to do was swear in court that Gordon was wearing the check cap that had fallen off during the raid and which had subsequently been retrieved by the police. And again, the witness turned down a sweetener of £200 this time for helping out. If Gordon was the one wearing the cap, then it could be proved that Gordon was the one that had hit the witness during the raid. A quick bung of money to one of the officers in charge of the evidence ensured that the actual cap was replaced with one three sizes larger. So when Gordon was asked to try it on in court, it just fell down over his ears and his eyes. About the same time, a friend of Gordon's who was very similar in appearance to Mickey Ball was brought into court to cast doubt on the ironmonger's statement that Mickey had bought the bolt cutters from him. And finally, an actor friend helped out by swearing that the stage makeup found in Gordon's flat used as part of his disguise actually belonged to him. Case dismissed. Charlie Wilson was also found not guilty, and as for Bruce Reynolds, well, his name had long since been removed from the case file as Terry Hogan had paid one of his police contacts £1,500 to do it. As Gordon left the courtroom, the prosecution counsel congratulated him. Thanks, said Gordon, smiling from ear to ear as he picked up the chain that should have been crucial to finding him guilty. Your expert ain't much good, is he? He said. He never spotted this. And there, in front of the barrister, he broke apart the artificial link which they had prepared but never used. Chuckling to himself, Gordon left the old Bailey a free man, but it had been a close-run thing. 
next time they were going to have to be a lot more careful. Nineteen sixty-three, new year, new beginnings. Bruce Reynolds and the gang turn their attention to robbing trains again. After all, the South Coast Raiders appear to be having a lot more success than they ever had. At first, they considered the gold train. A weekly delivery of approximately a tonne of gold shipped from South Africa by the Union Castle line to Southampton. It was transported by rail to Waterloo and met by an assortment of police, Bank of England officials and security and taken off under heavy escort to the Bank of England. They didn't have to think too hard about that one though, there'd be no chance it was too dangerous. Their only chance of hitting the train would be when it was in transit but then the major problem would be logistical. How on earth would it be possible to remove, load and transport a tonne of gold? And so, Bruce Reynolds turned his attention to the money train. The train ran from Bournemouth to Waterloo. Its last stop was at Weybridge, where realistically it would be the only option for them to strike in the early hours of the morning, for it was here that anything between 27 and 32 bags would be unloaded. The gang could strike at the station itself and not have to worry about hitting the train as it was moving or try and bring it to a halt. Two Jaguar 3.4s were stolen in preparation and an elaborate piece of equipment consisting of two cylinders containing compressed air and fuller's earth were prepared. These were to be used against the police presence on the night because if released into the enclosed space of a car it would render the occupants helpless. Time, however, dragged by as the gang waited for the perfect opportunity to strike. Too long, in fact, as fate stepped in when Jimmy's garages were broken into and the cars and the equipment were stolen. Bruce tried to G everyone up and keep them infused, but the impetus for that particular job had gone. In February 1963, Gordon and Buster came up with a similar idea. Armed with some inside knowledge from Gordon's bent solicitor Brian Field, the plans for the great train robbery began to hatch. Brian Field initially met with Gordon at the Old Bailey one day and said that there may be some solid information about a very large regular transfer of money by what was known as a travelling post office. And that was how it all started. No real information at this point in time. Gordon met with Brian Field again a few weeks later at the offices of Wheater Solicitors. This time he brought Buster along to hear what he thought. Brian Field explained that this could be the big one. There was a man they needed to meet who had all the inside information. Buster and Gordon reported back to Bruce. Brian Field had not let him down with his defence and his contacts so far. There was no reason to doubt what he said was genuine, so a further meeting was arranged this time with a man who has gone down in great train robbery legend as the Ulsterman. Even this name is a bit questionable. 
He was given this name only after Gordon had secretly checked inside the man's jacket one afternoon and come up with an holster address. They met on a bench in Finsbury Park and the information given was this. The target of the robbery was to either Glasgow to Euston Travelling Post Office, also known as the Up Special or Up Postal. The Ulsterman said that potentially it could be carrying up to £6 million or £123 million if converted today. There could be between 50 and 80 mailbags that would be transported in the high value package or HVP coach on the train. These contained surplus to requirements cash from all the banks in Scotland as well as other banks adjacent to the route going south picking up along the way. On a bank holiday, there could often be five times as many bags. The HVP coach was usually the second from the diesel loco. Inside would be five postal workers. In a separate section of the train towards the back, there would be 70 postal sorters going through the overnight mail. Final destination, Euston Station, where the bags would then be transported to the East Croydon District Post Office in King Edward Street near St Paul's. A further meeting was set up with Bruce Reynolds, Gordon Goody, Charlie Wilson, Jimmy White, Buster Edwards and Mary Manson to discuss what their chances were. Following the farce of the trial for the City Gents airport raid, the gang feared that the whole thing was a police setup designed to tempt them out. But Bruce was intrigued. They'd never really had this much in-depth inside information before. Also the size of the ultimate prize at least a million pounds. Bruce and John Daly decided to do a little research of their own and took a train out of Euston that followed the route of the travelling post office. The best place to stop the train, potentially some open countryside around the Leighton Buzzard area, around 40 miles from Euston by rail or road. But then that led to the issue of how the gang would then get back to London with their spoils. The gang met again at Buster's flat in Twickenham. They all agreed that the train would have to be stopped, but they couldn't board it beforehand as passengers, as it wasn't a passenger train. The gang were going to need some help with this one. Who better than the South Coast Raiders, the team that have been successfully stopping and robbing trains on the Brighton line for several months now. Buster was more than familiar with the work of the Raiders. He was friends with one of them, Tommy Wisby, and he'd worked with him before. Buster set up a meeting with Tommy Wisby at a bar owned by Bob Welch. Also present that day was one of the gang who to this day is still unknown and from now on will be referred to as Mr Three. A further meeting led to introductions to Roger Cordry, the head of the Raiders himself. Things were shaping up nicely, but the gang needed to do a lot more research, a lot more planning and recruit some more people. All this was going to be something on the scale of which had never been attempted before. First of May, 1963. This will become a key date in the history of the Great Train Robbery and those involved. In court, 1st of May 1963 was chosen as the legal start of the conspiracy that was the Great Train Robbery. A full meeting of the train robbery gang took place. 
At the time, this included Bruce Reynolds, Gordon Goody, Charlie Wilson, Buster Edwards, Jimmy White, Roy James, John Daly, Roger Cordry, Tommy Wisby, Bob Welch, Jim Hussey, and the three unnamed robbers. Further records of the area by gang members pinpointed exactly where the strike was to take place. Leadburn, a small hamlet in the parish of Mentmore in Buckinghamshire. Bridge number 127, known as the Bridego Bridge, carried the railway over a quiet country lane. The arch itself was just under 11 foot high and the line ran only 15 feet above the ground. The bridge itself was built of light purple bricks with small metal rails on either side and it was supported by buttressed walls which ran level with the angle of the embankment. To the west of the bridge, on one side of the road, was a small copse of conifer trees and on the other, a pond that could prove to be a problem if someone decided to partake in a spot of night fishing. Conveniently, next to the pond was a small concreted area used by fishermen as a car park, which is also where the embankment ended in a waist-high stone wall, perfect for parking and unloading a lorry. About half a mile up the track to the north was a set of signals suspended from a gantry which spanned the track. And about 1,300 yards beyond that towards Linsdale was what was known as the Dwarf Signal. Both sets of signals were a long way away from any buildings or farmhouses. Roger Caldry accompanied Bruce on a scouting mission and being the expert in all things to do with signals and stopping trains concluded that the site was just about right for what they wanted to achieve. There was no doubt he could stop the train at the gantry. All he had to do was rig the dwarf signal first which would indicate to the driver that he had to slow down before eventually pulling to a complete halt at the gantry 1300 yards further down the line. The problem would then be how to move the train the half mile or so to the bridge which would serve as the unloading point. The only sensible answer would be to uncouple the engine and front two coaches from the rest of the train and move it forward. This would then isolate the 70 sorting staff leaving them behind, leaving the gang with just the driver, the fireman and the six men in the HVP coach itself. Several of the gang familiarised themselves with the coupling mechanism of trains by obtaining service manuals and sneaking into train yards in the dead of night to practice the whole process smoothly, quickly and efficiently. Many more trips to Bridego Bridge would follow. Timings and distances were checked and double checked. And despite Roy's confidence that he could learn how to drive the train himself, the risk was too great. They would either have to persuade the driver to move the train forward, or find someone who actually knew how to drive one instead. And it's at this point in our story that we meet Ronnie Biggs. Perhaps the most famous of all the train robbers due to his exploits following the robbery, but in reality a very minor part of the gang. Ronnie was a long-standing friend of Bruce's and was more of a builder and decorator than a thief. I'm sure he'd done some time in Wandsworth with Bruce for petty fever years before and both were ex-Balstall boys, but their lives had taken different directions. That was until one day, casually in conversation, Ronnie happened to mention that he'd been working on the bungalow of an old train driver and had become quite friendly with him. Sensing that this might be the opportunity they were looking for, Ronnie was brought into the gang for an equal share and the train driver was to be given a drink of a few thousand pounds for his part in the robbery. 
Many different accounts of the train driver have been written over the years. In various books and film adaptations he's been referred to as Peter, Stan, Wally or Alf. The truth of the matter is he was never caught and his name was never revealed, but of course, more on that later. And so it seemed that the signalling issue would not be a problem. The train could be uncoupled and it could then be moved to the unloading point at Bridego Bridge. The next hurdle to overcome would be where to go from there. Almost immediately, the idea of racing back to London would be too much of a risk. They were 40 miles out. There were a lot of people to consider and deep down, who would trust who when it come to taking charge of the money before it had actually been counted? The answer was simple. The gang was already in a fairly isolated spot, very small villages nearby and just the occasional farmhouse. All they had to do was hole up somewhere nearby, wait for the heat to die down and make their escape a few days later. With this in mind, on the 24th of June 1963, Bruce visited Midland Mart's estate agents in Bicester and asked for a list of local properties for sale. The list wasn't particularly long, so he originally planned to visit all of them, but in the end he didn't have to. First on the list was Leverslade Farm in the parish of Oakley. The farm was two miles from the Oxfordshire border, close to the villages of Brill and Oakley between Bicester and Tame. It was 27 miles west of the Bridego Bridge on the other side of Aylesbury. The main buildings were 300 yards from the main road on the B4001 or Tame Road. Isolated and remote and hidden by trees, it held a commanding position over the countryside. Locals knew it as Nuthook Farm, or more commonly Rickson's Place. And best of all, it didn't actually appear on any ordnance survey map, making it virtually unknown to anybody who didn't know that it was there. Immediately, it was decided that the purchase of the farm would be put in the hands of solicitor Brian Field through his firm owned by John Wheater. The farm was bought for £5,500, nominally in the name of Leonard Field, no relation, and after some careful negotiations, a 10% payment of 550 was accepted by Mr Rickson, the owner. Contracts were signed and vacant possession was granted. Time ticked by, but the gang kept busy. There was still a lot to organise. In July, Jimmy White sorted out uniforms and overalls for the robbery, and with the help of Mr One, he began to secure the transport required. A Land Rover was stolen from central London, and another, an ex-war department vehicle, bought from a London car dealer. These, along with the purchase of an Austin goods platform truck from a government surplus contractor in Edgware, formed the basis of the vehicles required for the job. Charlie Wilson was put in charge of gathering all the food and drink that would be needed while the gang were in hiding. This included three dozen loaves of bread, a gross of eggs, two dozen tins of baked beans, tins of tomatoes, 10 pounds of bacon, as well as 24 pounds of tea, a crate of carnation milk, a catering tin of coffee and 30 pounds of sugar. Added to this was a sack of potatoes, basket of fruit, salt, pepper, butter and all the crockery and cutlery to go with it. Oh, and a Monopoly set. Roy James and the gang members that would be acting as drivers tested the route using the back roads between Bridego Bridge and Leverslade Farm. On 
the 26th of July, Bruce organised a low-key rehearsal at Stewart's Lane Depot in Battersea. Positions were decided and all the roles were interchangeable in case someone went missing or became incapacitated for some reason or another. On the 31st of July, Gordon and Buster had their final meeting with the mysterious Ulsterman. He confirmed that the best time to hit the train would be in a week's time on the 7th of August. It was just after the bank holiday, which would mean that the payoff would be a lot higher. Arrangements were made to contact him on the 6th, the day just before, to confirm that everything was still good to go. And intriguingly, one of the last things he said to them was, I've got another bigger job for you after this. All that was left to do was to make sure families were safe and alibis sorted. Bruce and Francis Reynolds moved out of their flat on Putney Hill on the 1st of August. Francis had made arrangements to be in a caravan with her sister Barbara in Wynne, Chelsea. Barbara, incidentally, being the wife of John Daly. Ronnie Biggs told his wife Charmian that he'd been offered a week's work tree felling somewhere in Wiltshire. Gordon Goody flew out to Northern Ireland with his mother and a friend on the 2nd of August, returning alone on Tuesday the 6th under the name Mr McGonagall. And on the same day, Ronnie Biggs and his train driver friend travelled by train from Redhill to meet Bruce for breakfast near Victoria Station. Also waiting there were John Daly, Jimmy White and Mr One. This group set off early morning in one of the Land Rovers and arrived at Leverslade Farm a few hours later. Biggs and Mr One cooked lunch for them. Jimmy White fixed the generator while the driver sunbathed in the garden. Part of the gang turned up in the afternoon in the Austin truck driven by Mr Two. The group included Tommy Wisby, Jim Hussey, Bob Welch, Buster Edwards and Mr Three. The group stopped off briefly in Bista where Welch picked up ten pipkins of ale from an off licence. Charlie Wilson and Roy James arrived at the farm in the second Land Rover. Roger Caldry turned up at the farm a little later, under his own steam. And to pass the time, some of the gang played Monopoly that had been brought along to the farm. Having returned from Northern Ireland, Gordon Goody first went to the house of Brian and Karen Field near Pangbourne to wait for the update from the Ulsterman. The news was not good. The load that was being carried that night would not be worth the risk. On the Ulsterman's advice, Goody and Field decided to postpone for 24 hours. Goody arrived at Leverslade Farm at around 11pm. As he arrived, the gang were already trying on uniforms and preparing to leave for the raid within the next couple of hours. Goody, as Biggs recalled, was swigging from a bottle of whiskey and told them all to stand down for 24 hours. The following morning, Wednesday the 7th of August 1963, unknown to Ronnie Biggs, his brother had suddenly passed away in the night. His wife, Charmian, unsure of how to get hold of him, called Red Hill Police Station and asked police to look for him. The only information she had was that he was tree felling somewhere in Wiltshire. The call was duly logged and would eventually destroy Biggs's alibi later. The gang had a whole day to kill before they had to move off later that evening. Bruce Reynolds reminded them all to show as little movement as possible around the house keeping gloves on at all times and despite the baking hot weather not to go outside. 
there was a knock at the door. Everybody ducked into different corners of different rooms. It was Ronald Wyatt, a neighbouring farmer, hoping to meet with the new owner of Leverslade Farm to negotiate use of one of the fields. Luckily, Bruce and most of the others were dressed in overalls. Bruce explained they were just the decorators and that Mr Field would not be moving in for several days. Lucky escape. Later that afternoon, Bruce ran through the plan one last time. Glasgow to Euston travelling post office, up postal, consisting of an engine, English electric class 40 diesel locomotive D326 and five coaches, left Glasgow for London at 6.50pm on Wednesday the 7th of August 1963. The train was scheduled to arrive at Euston station in London at 3.59am on the 8th of August. The second coach from the engine was the high value packages or HVP coach. At 7.32pm, the up-post arrived at Carstairs, 28 miles south of Glasgow. Here, four coaches that had left Aberdeen at 3.30 that afternoon were added to the back of the train. This longer train departed Carstairs at 7.45pm. At 8.54, the locomotive and its nine coaches arrived at Carlisle, where another three coaches were added. This then departed at 9.04pm, and at this point in the train's journey, there were just 30 HVP mailbags on board. And so, as darkness fell, the gang sat around the farmhouse, waiting patiently for the signal to go. Gordon Goody slipped out around 10pm to the nearby phone box. One phone call later to Brian Field confirmed it. They were good to go, and the job was on. And according to the Ulsterman, the payout was going to be high. At 10.53pm the train made a 10 minute stop at Preston. Here the number of mail bags now totaled 41. Onwards to Warrington where it left with 46. Midnight. It was now Thursday the 8th of August, which also happened to be Ronnie Biggs's 34th birthday. Nobody there that night could have predicted the size of the birthday present in store. The night was cool. Everything was lit up by the late summer moonlight peering from behind the occasional scatter cloud. And most importantly, there was no rain that evening. Perfect conditions. At 12 minutes past midnight, the night flyer up postal arrived at Crew Station. After a stop of 22 minutes, it left with a change of crew in its engine. Up front now was the driver, Jack Mills, and the fireman, or secondman, David Whitby. The train was gradually getting longer. There were now 12 coaches as well as the engine, and still in place as the second coach from the locomotive was coach number POS 30204, the HVP coach. 
and in the HVP there were now 91 mailbags. Just before 1am the gang set off from Leverslade Farm dressed as an army unit on night manoeuvres. Reynolds had made sure that all the gang were given numbers so that their names would not be used. Bruce Reynolds was of course number one. The gang travelled minor sea roads through the quiet little village of Brill. Driving slowly so as not to attract too much attention, the convoy was spotted at least twice on the route. Once by the occupant of a cottage who saw the lorry and the two Land Rovers drive past, not thinking too much of it, and another time by a solitary hitchhiker. Meanwhile, at 1.30am the train was just leaving Tamworth station. Here it had picked up Joseph Ware and John O'Connor who would take up their positions in the HVP coach along with Frank Dewhurst who was in charge. Also in this van were Leslie Penn and Thomas Kett. On board there were now 125 high value package mailbags. The gang continued their journey onto Bridego Bridge. Each of them had a dark balaclava and a boiler suit to put on over their military uniforms. With them were four walkie talkies, eight six volt batteries, some wire, a pair of black leather gloves, an axe, coshes, pickaxe handles and a pair of handcuffs. The 27 miles from the farm took about 50 minutes. The gang arrived at Bridge 127 Bridego Bridge at about 1.45am. The three vehicles drove up to the bridge and stopped just short on the verge by the small pond. Luckily there was no one fishing that night. The vehicles turned around facing the right way to retrace their route as they were to make their escape later. The lorry parked closest to the bridge and the Land Rovers nearer to the pond. Here they swapped their uniforms for overalls to give the impression that they were now track workers if spotted by passing trains. Surprisingly for the time of night there would be quite a few. By now the moon was nearly full in the cloudless sky casting the brightest of light to illuminate their way. At Bridego Bridge itself the stretch of railroad consisted of four sets of track, two up and two down. Down fast was the track to the west, up fast was the next, and then down slow and to the east up slow. The train would be travelling on the up fast track. Gordon Goody and other members of the gang scrambled up the embankment. At the top they positioned a white sheet stretched between two poles to indicate exactly where they wanted the train to stop. Meanwhile, James Daly and Bruce Reynolds climbed nearby telegraph poles and cut the telephone wires to the two nearest farmhouses, Bowden Farm and Redborough Farm. They also cut the wires of the trackside phones. At 2.12am the train arrived at Rugby. Departing five minutes later with its full complement of 128 HVP mailbags on board. At around 2.40am Daly was dropped off by Reynolds at the Dwarf Signal in order to prepare to change the signal from green to amber for the upfast track. Daly and Cordry would have to rig two signals in order to get the train to stop. The first, the Dwarf Signal, was to be set to amber by Daly. Whilst further up the track on the gantry, Cordry would set the main signal to red. In order to wire up the dwarf light, Cordry started the process by wiring up the amber bulb to four 6 volt ever ready batteries with crocodile clips and a switch. All Daly had to do was wait for a signal from Bruce, cover the green light with one of the gloves and flick the switch. Bruce dropped Cordry off at the main signal gantry at Sears Crossing, situated about halfway between Daly's position at the Dwarf Signal and the Bridego Bridge where it was intended that the gang would unload the train. 
Bruce Reynolds continued in the Land Rover about one mile north of the bridge. Here, from his elevated position, smoking a fine Monte Cristo number two cigar, he would have a clear view of the oncoming train. At Sears Crossing itself, the bridge that spanned over the track, Edwards, White, Welch, Mr. One and Mr. Three were waiting, along with Cordry up on the gantry. Between them and the intended first stopping position of the train were two tracks, up slow and down slow. The track telephone, located in the middle of the track, sat silently, its wires having been cut. To the west of the tracks at the same location were Goody, Wilson, Wisby, Hussey, Mr. Two, Biggs and the gang's driver. At 2.53am the train thundered through Bletchley, getting closer and closer. Five minutes later she roared past the number one signal box at Leighton Buzzard just a couple of miles away. From his vantage point Bruce could see the distant lights of the train getting closer and closer. Through his binoculars he could see the small slit-like windows of the sorting coaches illuminated by the lights within. Bending down, he touched the cold steel rail and could just feel the vibration of the engine as she got closer and closer. He could now hear the deep, distant roar of the locomotive and flicking on the walkie-talkie and putting it to his mouth, he shouted, This is it! This is it! signal had been given. John Daly, following the instructions given to him by signal expert Roger Cordry, started the procedure for falsifying the dwarf signal. Having successfully rigged up the amber light to the batteries, he struggled to place the leather glove over the green light to hide it. Instead, with time running against him, he simply unscrewed the green bulb and cast it aside. Not realising the importance of this, he was unaware that this triggered an alarm in the latent buzzard signal box indicating a fault. Luckily for Daly and the rest of the gang, this fault would not be investigated until later when a technician found the discarded glove and switch by the trackside. Roger Caldry, meanwhile, applied the correct procedure to the signal further along the track on the gantry, ensuring that they indicated red. Jack Mills, the driver of the train, spotted the amber light and began to apply the brakes in the locomotive. From his position he could see the home signal set to red on the Sears crossing gantry and slowly brought the night flyer to a complete halt. It was now 3.03 on the morning of the 8th of August 1963. The train was now 38 miles north of its intended destination of London's Euston station. On board as well as the 128 HVP mailbags were the five salters in the HVP coach. Dewhurst, Penn, Kett, Ware and O'Connor. Spread throughout the rest of the train, 72 other sorting staff under the control of a post office inspector and up front driver Jack Mills and fireman David Whitby. Stops were a usual occurrence along the route so there was no reaction from the 77 post office workers. But something bothered Mills and Whitby. The track at this point was dead straight. With the Sears crossing light showing red, they expected lights further ahead to be red too and they could see that this was not the case. To Mills it suggested that the track was clear and that the signal must have been at fault. 
And so, not waiting the standard three minutes as would have been usual in a situation like this, Fireman David Whitby jumped down from the cab on the left-hand side, stepping down between the up-fast and the down-slow tracks. Looking for the trackside phone to call and check why the train had been stopped, he found one, but something was horribly wrong. Jack, the wires have been cut. Returning to the cab, he spotted a man between the second and third coaches. It was Buster Edwards. Spotting that Edwards was wearing a bib and braces, he naturally assumed that he was a track worker. Hold on Jack, I'll go and see what's going on. Hello mate, what's up? he said. Come here, said Buster, beckoning to follow him across the tracks to the east of the embankment. Here of course other members of the gang were waiting in the shadows. Buster suddenly grabbed hold of Whitby and bundled him down the embankment towards them. A hand was put over his mouth and a cosh waved in front of his face. If you shout, I'll kill you, said a voice from behind a balaclava. You're right, mate, said Whitby. I'm on your side. All that could be heard in the still of that warm August night was the deep rumble of the motionless locomotive's enormous diesel engine ticking over and the intermittent sound of clanking metal. Several things started to take place at once. As rehearsed, Reynolds drove down from his distant vantage point to pick up John Daly at the Dwarf Signal. Ducked down between coaches two and three, Jimmy White and Roy James began to uncouple the engine and first two carriages from the rest of the train, and Buster Edwards started to make his way up to the cab via the external metal ladder. Suddenly realising that the balaclava-wearing figure dressed in a boiler suit and carrying an 18-inch piece of piping was not his fireman David Whitby, Mill struck out a buster. Thinking that he was acting alone, he tried to force Buster from the footplate. A brave move from a proud man that cost him dearly, for as Jack Mill struggled with Buster, very nearly pushing him out of the cab, a second gang member, also wearing a balaclava, entered the cab from the opposite door and grabbed Mills from behind. It's at this point the accounts of what happened next get a little foggy. Through the mist of time, stories were changed, elaborated on and embellished. Some people just plain lied. The truth may never be known. Versions of this story here have Buster swiping at Mills with his piece of piping. Others state that it was Gordon Goody that grabbed Mills and Mr. Three, one of the South Coast Raiders, cracked him across the head. Whoever it actually was, the second gang member climbed into the cab through the opposite door on the other side and grabbed Mills from behind. According to Mills, the next thing he knew that he was down on his knees with blood pouring into his eyes and that his precious cab was filled with men dressed in boiler suits and carrying coshes and clubs. In the press and later in court, this incident was reported in a variety of ways. There's no doubt that Mills was injured. The cut on his head required 14 stitches. There are reports that after being struck, he fell against the protruding metal edge part of the cab, which actually caused the injury. It was also alleged at one point that Mills actually stated that he injured himself falling. Whatever the true version of events, we may never know, 
but the sight of Jack Mills on the TV reports over the following weeks with blackened eyes and the large padded bandage around his head would hit home with the public, and he would be used by the police to emphasise the dangerous nature of the gang at large. Charlie Wilson wiped the blood from Mills' face with a rag. By now, there were at least nine or ten of the gang in the cab, including the driver brought along by Ronnie Biggs. The fireman Whitby was brought up from the embankment and led into the passage behind the cab. Here, he was joined by Mills the driver, and they were handcuffed together. From their position in the corridor behind the cab, they could sense something was wrong up front. Biggs' driver was struggling to get the train moving. He had one job and one job only, and that was to drive the train the 1100 yards or so to the Bridegoat Bridge. But there was a problem, or several to be exact. What nobody realised at the time was that although James and White had successfully managed to uncouple Coach 2 from the rest of the train, they'd failed to seal the brake connecting pipe properly. As well as this, Biggsy's driver, despite having a long-standing work history on Southern Region as a shunter, had no experience of the vacuum brakes used here, or even the Class 40 loco itself. Tensions were running high in the cramped cab as he desperately tried to get the train to move, but to no avail. There was nothing else for it. Fetch the driver, shouted Gordon Goody, and Welch darted off down the corridor. The meticulously set out plan was starting to look very shaky. If the train couldn't be moved to Bridego Bridge where the lorry was waiting, they'd have no chance of unloading it. Plus, there would be the matter of dealing with 70-odd staff that was still, at this particular moment, only yards away. Mills was brought back into the cab. Still foggy and shook up from his injury, he started to take charge of the controls. The engine shuddered, moved forward a couple of feet and then stopped. And again, forward a few feet, shuddered, stopped. Jimmy White, realising what was up, jumped out of the cab and ran down the track back to the rear of the security coach. Seeing that the air pressure valve was not fully closed, he kicked it shut and ran back to the cab as fast as he could just as the engine started to move off. The engine roared into life and slowly D321 edged forward the unmanned bogey brake van and HVP coach still attached. Now things were literally moving. There was also a second series of pipes that transferred steam generated by the engine from carriage to carriage through the heating system of the train. James and White had either forgotten to disconnect them or were unaware that as coaches two and three pulled apart they would break, causing steam to escape from the rear of the HVP coach. So by now, the HVP staff were alerted that something was wrong. Some of them shouted through the narrow slit windows trying to attract the attention of the driver, whilst another managed to pull the communication cord. Behind the HVP coach, the first of the coaches left behind, coach three, ripped away from the front of the train, leaving behind the 70 or so sorting staff in the rear coaches. Amazingly, despite being puzzled by the separation of the train, the men in the rear were not unduly perturbed by it. Signal staff believing that there was a signal failure now also believe that there may be a track indicator failure as well. Signal staff were ordered to investigate at Sears Crossing as soon as possible, and the up-fast lane was closed to prevent any further trains coming through. 
At about this time, Bruce Reynolds had arrived at the embankment with Daly. They made their way up the slope to where the white cloth marker had been positioned earlier and waited for the arrival of the train. Reynolds watched in awe as the train approached, chuckling to himself as he could see his mates, his gang, hanging off the sides, waving to him. Marvellous, just marvellous, he thought. James, spotting the marker, signalled to Goody, who in turn ordered Mills to stop the train. Time now would be more important than ever if they were to get away quickly and successfully. Mills and Whitby were again handcuffed together and led off to the embankment away from the train. Biggsy's driver was taken back to one of the Land Rovers for the final part of the assault. At 3.15am, Charlie Wilson smashed through the window of the HVP carriage. With him was Hussey, Goody, Welch, Edwards, Wisby, Mr. One and Mr. Three. It's a raid, shouted one of the post office crew as they frantically tried to barricade the doors with mailbags. The Salters later reported hearing one of the gang shout, Get the guns! There were no firearms used in the raid, only axes and coshes, but they were proved to be just as nasty as events unfolded. More glass windows were smashed. In burst two masked raiders brandishing coshies. Doors were kicked in as others crashed their way through the rear gangway waving the weapons. Get back, all of you! Ket tried to protect himself and was cracked on the arm with a kosh. Which one of you bastards bolted the doors? Bang! Bang! Dewurst received a couple of sickening blows. Get some more men up here! Penn attempted to duck away from one of the gang that was wielding an axe and was instantly whacked across his back by an iron bar. Bang! Again he was hit and fell to the floor. Dewhurst, receiving some of the same, was hit at least five or six times. Ket was cracked across the head. The salting crew were ordered to lie down and close their eyes. A human chain of masked robbers was swiftly formed, stretching from the HVP coach down the embankment to the waiting vehicles at the bridge. Watching this procession of mailbag after mailbag from their vantage point at the Land Rover sat Ronnie Biggs and the gang's train driver. Bag after bag was passed down the chain from man to man. 120 bags, weighing a total of nearly two and a half tonnes, made their way down one by one finally being loaded onto the lorry by Hussey and Welch. The gang would not fully realise the true value of what they had just unloaded until much later at the farm. That's it, time, shouted Reynolds at 3.30. Go, go! There were still eight bags left on the train, but time would now be of the essence. Quickly, the men made their way down the embankment and jumped into the waiting vehicles, Whitby and Mills, his head still bleeding from the earlier blow, were led back to the rest of the salting crew in the HVP van and ordered to lie down with the rest of them. It's at this point that one of the masked gang said to the post office staff to keep still and not move for half an hour. An order that would prove fatal for the gang when later the police would begin their search for them. More on that in a moment. 
the gang removed their overalls and returned to military uniforms. A quick head count, everyone present and correct. They retraced their journey back to Leverslade Farm. About 30 minutes after the gang had left, Thomas Miller, who was the guard at the rear of the 10 coaches that were left way back at Sears Crossing, had made his way to the detached engine and HVP coach now at the Bridego Bridge. Shocked at the scene before him, his colleagues battered, bruised and bleeding and an empty HVP coach, he managed to flag down the northbound train. The fireman from this train boarded the stranded 326 and drove it on to safety at Cheddington Station. At about the same time as the gang arrived back at Leverslade Farm, the first reports of the crime were being made. Scotland Yard received the call at just before 4.30am from the control office at Euston saying that the Cheddington signal box was requesting the attendance of police and an ambulance. Buckinghamshire Constabulary were informed as initially it was believed that there was a break-in at the Cheddington station itself. Head of Buckinghamshire CID, Detective Superintendent Malcolm Futrell, 33 years on the force, was awoken by a call shortly after informing him of a train robbery at Cheddington. This would be the start of eight gruelling months of investigation for Futrell. An investigation that for some would continue for many years after. Mills and Whitby, still handcuffed together, were taken by ambulance to the Royal Buckinghamshire Hospital in Aylesbury. Whitby was uninjured, but Mills was found to have a number of lacerations to his head. He received 14 stitches and was detained overnight for observation. Not before officers had to call out for a hacksaw though, as the handcuffs were of American design and they didn't have a key. Statements were started to be taken, and the first roadblocks were set up as it became apparent that this robbery was on a scale that had never been witnessed before. As they drove up to the farm, Gordon Goody would recall many years later that the radio was playing Tony Bennett singing The Good Life. And he thought to himself, how appropriate. Goody would dispute stories of a party atmosphere in the farm over the next 24 hours. He recalls that the time was spent counting piles and piles of money. So please be honest with yourself. Stories of games of Monopoly being played with real money and cigars being lit by fivers were not true, he said. But other gang members told a different story. It's the good life. One thing they all agreed on was that there was a lot of money. The unknown. Buster Edwards would later describe the scene as a room full of paper. When you learn, you must face them alone. Please remember 
I still want you And in case you wonder Wake up, kiss the good life goodbye. The gang were under strict instructions to wear gloves at all times. It was highly likely that all of them would be the first names the police would think of and that no evidence of them being there should be left behind. The gang listened to a UHF radio in the background tuned to the police frequency and they couldn't help but laugh when a report came through saying that someone had nicked a train. And so they counted. And counted and counted. Taking it in turns to eat, sleep and count, it took hours. The official police investigation put the final amount at £2,595,997.10. Not the six million they were expecting, but the equivalent of a staggering £51 million today. There was about 1.2 million in £5 notes and about 1.3 million in £1 and 10 shilling notes. There was also a quantity of Scottish and Irish notes that no one really seemed that bothered about, as well as a quantity of the old style white fiver which had just been withdrawn from circulation back in 1961. Police would only have the serial numbers of just 15,000 of the £5 notes, £75,000 worth. Depending on what version of the story you believe, the money was split into 17 or 18 equal shares, with smaller payments going to other people involved, including the train driver, who never actually drove the train. The amount the gang members received equated to about £150,000, nearly £3 million a day. Not bad for one night's work. Now, all they had to do was sit tight for a few days until the heat had died down, and then they could make their separate ways back home and on to wherever took their fancy. The gang had planned to lay low for as long as a week, possibly even longer, judging by the amount of provisions they had taken with them. The press coverage was relentless as the story of the raid captured the public's imagination. As well as radio reports and newspapers, the gang were still listening in to police broadcasts on the UHF radio. And it was through this that they heard that the police were concentrating their search within 30 miles of the crime scene. The police had based this search area on the comment made to post office staff as the gang fled, telling them not to move for 30 minutes. This led the police to quite correctly and luckily assume that the gang were less than 30 miles away. And indeed they were. Leverslave Farm fell two miles within the intended search zone. One of the original plans had been to move out the following Sunday, transporting all of the money in a horse box. 
Another plan involved using the lorry with the money hidden in a secret compartment, but the gang got word that the police were looking for military vehicles and so the lorry was hastily painted yellow to disguise it as a cement truck. Yellow paint that would eventually and controversially lead to the conviction of Gordon Goody, as some was allegedly found on his shoe. The gang lost no time in sweeping the place clean. Surfaces were wiped clean and wiped again. Anything that could be burnt was tossed onto a bonfire outside the farmhouse. Some of the gang set out to buy new vehicles in order to make their escape. The heat was definitely on and time was running out fast. Arrangements had been made for someone to come in after the gang had left and burn the place to the ground. Again, this fact has since been disputed and the truth lost in the midst of time. The gang began to leave the farm, each with their respective cuts from the robbery. Taking different routes in different vehicles, they made their separate ways. By the late evening of Friday the 9th of August, the farm had been completely abandoned. The morning newspapers the following day reported that rewards for information stood at £260,000, or £5 million in today's money. Names were slowly being drip-fed to the police by their informants and it's surprising how accurate they were. Within 12 hours of the robbery, police had the names of Welch, Reynolds, Daly, Wilson, Wisby and Hussey as potential suspects. Investigations, questioning and roadblocks continued. The pond by Bridego Bridge was searched by divers and the story dominated the TV and radio despite the fact that Stephen Ward one of the key figures of the Perfumo affair was buried on this day after committing suicide rather than face a prison sentence. Sunday the 11th of August 1963. The Sunday people made the link between the train robbery and the London airport job earlier in the year. The paper saw the Comet House raid as a curtain raiser for the train robbery and a way to fund it. Police continued their search of all buildings within the 30 mile radius that had been set up. Every farm, shed, barn and outhouse was located and checked. An informant mentioned to Detective Inspector Robert Densham of Oxfordshire County CID that it may be worth checking out Rickson's place or Leverslade Farm. It would have been an ideal place for a group of people to go unnoticed. The police started meticulously going through a list of other properties that had been sold or rented in the previous six months within 30 miles of Cheddington. And the following morning, the Monday, police tracked down Rickson, the former owner of Leverslade Farm, who of course had since sold it to Leonard Field. One of the 400 calls logged by Aylesbury Police that Monday was from farm worker John Maris. After reading in the papers that police were interested in isolated farms, he'd taken a closer look at Leverslade Farm himself and saw that the curtains were drawn and a large lorry he'd never seen before was parked in the barn. The following day, Maris persisted and called the police again. The net had finally closed in, 
At 10.50 on the morning of Tuesday the 13th of August, PC John Woolley and Sergeant Blackman paid a visit to Leverslade Farm. In the words of Malcolm Futrell, the head of Buckinghamshire CID, the place was just one big clue. About two hours after the farm had been discovered, obviously unknown to the gang, Reynolds, Edward, Wilson and James met up at a transport cafe on the North Circular Road. They were seriously concerned that they had no word back about the farm being cleaned as arranged. They made plans to return to the farm to burn it to the ground, but before they left at 4.30 they spotted the evening paper declaring that police had found their hideout. Despite the clean-up job attempted by the gang and the insistence that they wore gloves at all times, police were able to take 243 photographs of 311 fingerprints and 56 palm prints. Eventually, of the robbers arrested, nine of them were identified by fingerprints found at the farm, three by fingerprints elsewhere and two by forensic evidence at the farm. As well as the fingerprints, police found the three vehicles still in the barn, along with the paint used to try and disguise the lorry. There were also 116 outer white mailbags, 236 green inner mailbags, bank belts, GPO labels, partially burnt clothing, military jackets, balaclavas and overalls. Incredibly, there were batteries found that were of the same type used on the signals and even the instructions for the American style handcuffs used on Mills and Whitby. There were beer cans, crockery and cutlery as well as the bulk of all the food and drink purchased and of course the now legendary Monopoly board that also provided valuable fingerprint evidence. As well as the local police forces taking part, the flying squad, the Sweeney, headed by Detective Superintendent Tommy Butler, were soon taking charge. With their vast knowledge of London criminals, the underworld and an unlimited supply of informants willing to give information at the drop of a hat, arrests were soon made. First to be arrested was Roger Caldry, a mere week after the robbery in Bournemouth. Police recovered over £130,000 of the money hidden in two cars, along with a key to one of the cars that was hidden in Caudry's rectum. A key that had to eventually be removed with the help of a doctor. Bill Bowl, who didn't actually take part in the raid, was arrested with approximately another £10,000 of the haul. As all of this was unfolding, the rest of the gang were going to ground or scattering further afield to avoid detection. But things didn't slow down. On Friday the 16th of August, police were alerted to a bag found in Dorking Woods. Inside, over £100,000, two million today. It will take a while, but this bag was eventually traced back to the solicitor Brian Field and his wife Karin. Tommy Butler, head of the flying squad, drew up a list of 18 suspects and sent it over to the post office investigation branch. As it turned out, nine of those on the list had cast iron alibis, whilst another had been dead for nine months. But other names on the list included Reynolds, Goody, Wilson, White, Welch, James and Daly. 
On Saturday the 17th of August, national newspapers published the famous photo of suspects being led into Linsdale Magistrates Court covered in blankets. This iconic photo, however, didn't actually include any of the major players from the train robbery, just people accused of receiving stolen money or helping some of the suspects. Sunday, the 18th of August. During investigations at a caravan park in Surrey, police recovered a further £30,000 hidden in the panelling of a caravan. The days went by. Further arrests of minor players in the story, those that handled some of the money or bought cars on behalf of the gang. And then, on the 22nd of August, the first major player in the gang was arrested. Charlie Wilson was taken into custody as his fingerprints had been found at the farm on the kitchen windowsill, the drum of sex assault and the cellophane wrapping of a first aid kit. Wilson was taken from Cannon Row Police Station near Scotland Yard onto Aylesbury and charged. Charges for those arrested were made at Linslade Magistrates Court. The male prisoners were then moved to HMP Bedford and the women to Holloway. Mugshots were issued to the media featuring photos of Reynolds, White and Wilson along with photos of the wives. This pushed them further underground with Goody fleeing to Leicestershire. In one of the more surprising events of the whole affair following publication of the mugshots, Gordon Goody was arrested there at the Grand Hotel. He'd been wearing glasses to disguise himself and a florist who'd been delivering flowers to his room mistakenly took him to be Bruce Reynolds. Police searched various addresses that they believed Goody had stayed at and removed a pair of suede shoes that would later incriminate him. But for now, Goody was released without charge. Later, police would say that paint found on his shoes matched that of paint found on a watch winder from his jacket pocket and paint found at Leverslade Farm. By this time, Roy James was now listed by the police as a person of interest. And again, in another incredible piece to this whole affair, police visited Ronnie Biggs on the 24th of August. He was not even a suspect at this stage. The police had arrived merely to question him as they knew he was a friend of Bruce Reynolds and thought he may be able to lead them to him. Biggs was eventually arrested nine days later after his fingerprints were found on a plate and a bottle of ketchup. Biggs was the ninth person arrested in relation to the robbery and was charged the following day at Linslade Magistrates Court. Notably, also arrested and charged this day was another key figure in the Perfumo affair, Christine Keeler, who would go on to be sentenced to nine months in prison later in December. August slowly entered into September and the summer gradually made its way into autumn. More arrests took place. Jimmy Hussey was arrested due to the discovery of his palm print on the Austin lorry. Tommy Wisby's fingerprints on the bath led to his arrest this month. And Leonard Field, the man paid to act as legitimate purchaser of Leverslade Farm was also brought in. Brian Field, the solicitor, was finally linked to the bag of money found in Dorking Woods and duly charged. 
And as September drew to a close, preliminary hearing and committal proceedings took place for those charged. It was decided that the court would sit for 19 days between the 26th of September and the 2nd of December. November 1963, and while the world was rocked by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, the hunt for the rest of the gang continued. John Daly, with help from William Goodwin, buried £100,000 in the garden of relatives in Cornwall. Daly was eventually arrested on December the 3rd, the day after all the prisoners arrested to date attended court. All applications for bail were rejected, as was the request to move them all to Brixton Prison. Incidentally, part of the money buried in Cornwall was soon dug up again by Michael Black following Daly's arrest. Also in December, Bruce Reynolds narrowly avoided arrest when police just by chance happened to visit the house in Clapham where he was hiding with his wife Frances. The police had spotted a ladder up against the first floor window. Thinking that the property was being burgled, they knocked on the front door and were greeted by Frances in her dressing gown. Luckily, Bruce just had time to strip naked, and there, playing the part of a cheating lover caught out by the boys in blue, convinced them that there was nothing there to bother them with. It was only later that the police officers recognised Bruce from a wanted poster. By the time they realised and returned, Bruce and Francis had long fled. Ironically, it turned out that a burglary had actually taken place in the house, and a briefcase with £5,000 and jewellery had been stolen. Reynolds and Francis eventually bought a flat in Gloucester Road where they stayed put and didn't leave for a further six months. Another amazing part to this story took place on the 10th of December 1963. Police were tipped off that a large amount of cash would be left in a telephone box in Great Dover Street. Around 6.35pm, Butler and Williams found the money as promised in the phone box in old £1 notes and bundles of Scottish fivers. Fivers which of course could be traced back to the train. The total amount of money left in two sacks was £47,245. The cash was damp and musty, suggesting it had been buried. This is just another chapter in the story that's not too clear, but one recollection is that the anonymous call regarding the drop-off could have been linked to Frank Williams, who had been contacted by Freddie Foreman. Foreman trusted Williams and the cash was left in exchange for the police not chasing a certain suspect or suspect. According to Foreman, the drop worked and the police didn't bother this certain suspect again. On the same day, following a spectacular rooftop chase, police finally arrested Roy James thanks to another tip-off, the third in two months. Roy was linked to Leverslade Farm through fingerprints on a blue glass Pyrex plate in the first aid kit that also had Charlie Wilson's prints on it. Butler announced to the world's press that he now had 19 people in custody and was ready to start the court case. Twelve were charged with robbery, including Bowl, who wasn't even there on the night and was merely guilty of being an accessory. Eight were charged with receiving stolen money, and one, Brian Field, the solicitor's boss, Weeter, was charged with conspiracy. However, 
Only 14% of the stolen money had so far been recovered, a total of about £350,000. The police were of course certain that Bruce Reynolds, Buster Edwards and Jimmy White, all still on the run, were involved. Edwards at one point tried to cut a deal with the police using Freddie Foreman as a go-between but instead opted to flee to Germany where he underwent a painful botched attempt at plastic surgery. Jimmy White fled to Tangier. And while all of this was going on, Goody, Wilson and Biggs worked on a plan to escape from jail, knowing that the hospital wing at HMP Aylesbury, where they were being held, was not as secure as a normal prison. Their first idea involved doping the guards, but weighing it up, if all went wrong, that could be a 15-year sentence on top of what they could receive if found guilty of the train robbery. Too risky. So... Instead, they enlisted the help of friend, Johnny the Bosch, who managed to come up with a false key. Everything was in place for a mass escape. Charlie Wilson's contacts arranged to leave a car park near the back of the hospital. It had been noticed that the lock to Bowles' dormitory door was less secure than the others. The plan was for Bowles to quietly cut the lock out. Once out, he was to unlock Goody's cell, which was next door to the dorm, using the false key. Goody, in turn, would then unlock Wilson, who was on the same landing, and then they would both take out the night watchman. Following that, they were to make their way to the basement and free Ronnie Biggs. On the night of the planned escape, however, Bowl lost his nerve and confessed everything to the Chief Walder. As a result, all privileges were withdrawn, which included food and other luxuries being brought in. Cells were turned over and all smuggled in items were soon confiscated. So a new year was celebrated by many, not so much by those still in hiding or in jail though. The 20th of January 1963, Cliff and the Shadows were spending their second week at the top of the charts with the next time and Bachelor Boy, and at Buckingham Winter Assizes at the District Council Chamber in Aylesbury, the great train robbery trial opened. The, next time. the charges were mainly conspiracy to rob and armed robbery. The accused were all seated in a specially constructed dock with seats for just 60 people in the public gallery. The ancient history. 
There were 40 counsel, including 12 QCs, with Arthur James QC leading the prosecution. The 12-man jury was comprised entirely of men, and the entire proceedings were overseen by the judge, Mr Justice Edmund Davis. Every morning, afternoon and evening, the accused were locked into small individual compartments in a black Mariah. This was then escorted by at least four police cars and about a dozen motorcycle police on the 10 minute journey to and from the prison and council chamber. Initially, the trial proceeded swiftly with Roger Caudry pleading guilty on the first day to conspiracy to stop the mail and receiving large sums of money from the robbery. He pleaded not guilty to robbery with aggravation. The court accepted his plea and he was returned to prison to await sentencing. They say that I am a fool to Karin Field, the wife of solicitor Brian Field, informed the court that she was approached by a man demanding £3,000 in order to fix the jury. The man was subsequently arrested and informed the police that he was merely acting for a third party. Butler soon released him, saying that he was simply an agent provocateur. The gang got wind of another potential extortionist around this time, and Wilson quickly made arrangements for his wife to meet with him at a house in Clapham. This extortionist was met by friends of Charlie Wilson, who attempted to nail him to a tree in Clapham Common. Needless to say, the wires were not bothered again. On 22nd of January, Jack Mills was the first of 264 witnesses to give evidence, but was unable to identify any of the robbers. The jury was also taken to visit Leverslade Farm to see firsthand where the gang had made their escape. Over the last week of January and the first week of February 1964, the police, if only for a short while, looked in danger of letting the case against the accused slip away from them. In a remarkable twist of fate, Gordon Goody's defence team successfully put forward that as Goody had not been cautioned, all statements made by him from the time of his arrest in Leicester to when he left Aylesbury Police Station two days later were deemed inadmissible. The judge also reprimanded the police over searches that had apparently been made without the correct warrants. And incredibly, Detective Inspector Basil Morris let slip in court that Ronnie Biggs had served time in prison with Bruce Reynolds. The judge, who was obviously unhappy that the officer had basically divulged information about Biggs's criminal past, had no alternative but to order a retrial of Biggs's case. Eventually, on the 11th of February, the prosecution rested. And although it couldn't prove who was actually at the track and the actual scene of the crime, it was hoping there was evidence enough to prove that whoever was at Leverslade Farm could be found guilty of the charge of robbing Frank Dewhurst, the post office official in charge of the HVP coach. And so focus then turned to the defence. 
Defence counsels questioned that although there was fingerprint evidence of their clients at the farm, that itself didn't actually prove when the fingerprints were left there. They argued that their clients had no case to answer as there was no evidence to show when the fingerprints were made. The judge, taking all of this on board, eventually directed the jury to acquit John Daly. It had been assumed that the others would be met with a similar outcome as their submissions had been very similar to Daly's. But in the end, the judge rejected those of Biggs, Hussey, James and Welch. The accused were all still extremely confident that they all had reasonable explanations as to why their prints were found at the farm. But what actually happened was that with everyone coming up with different complex explanations, all it managed to do was throw considerable doubt on the credibility of the alibis. One by one, over the next few weeks, the gang took to the stand to plead their cases. Welch, Wisby and Hussey tried a joint approach which involved all of their activities together to explain the presence of the prints at the farm. Roy James's alibi presented to the court was swiftly torn apart by the prosecution as he claimed to have been nowhere near the crime scene on Leverslade Farm. Gordon Goody maintained that he was in Ireland at the time although in reality we've learnt that he was only there in the run-up to the robbery. And again, the judge's patience was tested when Goody suggested that the paint found on his shoes was planted there by the police. As for the solicitors, Brian Field and Weeter, Field's counsel argued that the bags found in Dawkin Woods did actually belong to him, but they were somehow stolen from his office before the robbery. Wheater's defence rested almost entirely on statements about his good character, statements that were submitted by politicians and members of the armed forces. An expert was brought in to back up Goody's claim about the paint on his shoes. He concluded that the paint on the accelerator of the Land Rover and the paint found on the shoes were not the same. And as we know, Goody never actually drove the Land Rovers. On and on the trial continued. Michael Black, who was believed to have dug up and stolen half of Daly's money, died suddenly of an apparent heart attack. John Daly by this time had been free for several weeks. Eventually, the arguments for the defence and prosecution came to an end on the 36th day of the trial. The judge, Justice Edmund Davis, began his summing up. Described by many as a stunning tour de force that itself took an incredible 33 hours. Eventually, after a 49-day trial, the jury retired to a secret location, cut off from the outside world, where after 66 hours in confinement, the longest in British legal history, they finally reached a verdict. Back in court on the 26th of March, each man stood to receive the verdict. Brian Field was found not guilty of aggravated robbery or receiving. Weeter was found not guilty of conspiracy, 
but for every other member of the gang, they were found guilty as charged. Following the retrial of Ronnie Biggs two weeks later and his claim that he was at Leverslade Farm merely to drop off a delivery and to use his carpentry skills to build a whipping post for a kinky party, he too was found guilty. And so, on Thursday, the 16th of April, 1964, the day that saw the release of the debut album by the Rolling Stones, the Great Train Robbers were taken to the Assizes, where it took Mr Justice Edmund Davis 28 minutes to sentence the 12 of them one by one. Most of the sentences were for two concurrent sentences, the crimes being robbery and being armed with an offensive weapon and conspiracy plus robbery with violence. John Wheater was sentenced to three years. Roger Caldry, 20 years. William Bull, who didn't even take part in the robbery, 24 years. Brian Field, the solicitor, 25 years. And Charlie Wilson, Ronald Biggs, Thomas Wisby, Robert Welch, James Hussey, Roy James and Gordon Goody, an unprecedented 30-year sentence. Twelve men were jailed for a total of 307 years, although the total sentences were actually 573 years as some of the sentences were to run concurrently. Eventually on appeal, they were reduced from 307 years to 251. The trial of the Great Train Robbers lasted for 51 working days over a period of 10 weeks. Evidence was heard from 264 witnesses and an estimated 2.5 million words were spoken in court. There were 2,350 witness statements and 1,700 exhibits. The estimated cost of the trial, £38,733 and the all-male jurors were paid 50 shillings per day for their trouble. And that was it, case closed. Robbers split up and sent to different prisons across the country. But of course it wasn't over. What about those still on the run, the police and their tireless efforts to bring them to justice, and the families and the victims? But first the sentences, 30 years for robbery. Following the trial, the country's media focused on the sentences handed out by Mr Justice Edmund Davis. A typical example was the front page of the Daily Mirror on the 17th of April, which showed the photographs and viewpoints of 30 members of the public and clearly indicated a 50-50 split in opinion as to whether the judgment was too harsh. Its leader, also printed that day under the heading Crime and Punishment, read... The whole country is arguing today about the tremendously long sentences imposed on the great train robbery criminals. People everywhere are puzzled by one glaring contrast. It is this. An evildoer, convicted of conspiracy and robbery, as in the train case, can lie sentenced to 30 years, which, with normal remission, means serving 20 years in prison. But an evildoer, convicted of murder, if jailed for life, 
is unlikely to serve more than 15 years. Does this mean that stealing banknotes is regarded as being more wicked than murdering somebody? What is the real purpose of the punishment in both cases? To meet out retribution? To deter others? To reform the criminal? Are the present methods of dealing with criminals effective in any case? Fundamental and far-reaching questions like these will be examined by the Royal Commission on Crime and Punishment announced by the Prime Minister yesterday. Everybody will welcome this important move. Months went by following the conclusion of the trial. Police efforts and investigations continued even more earnestly than before with more arrests including Henry Smith and Daniel Regan. Police found documents indicating that Regan and his associates have recently bought 32 houses in and around Portsmouth, as well as a drinking club and a hotel, but no physical evidence relating to the robbery. In June 1964, Bruce Reynolds quietly slipped out of the UK via Ostend, Brussels and Montreal before finally arriving in Mexico. On the 6th of July, The Beatles' first movie, A Hard Day's Night, had its premiere in London. It was also the start of the appeal for the convicted 12. After two weeks, Brian Field and Leonard Field had their sentences cut to five years. Bowl, who was never at the scene of the crime, had his conviction for armed robbery quashed and in its place a 14-year sentence for three charges of receiving. Caudry's sentence was also reduced to 14 years. Late July 1964, Frances Reynolds and her son Nick eventually joined Bruce in Mexico. In August, one year and four days after the robbery, Charlie Wilson managed to escape from prison. He was being held at HMP Winston Green in Birmingham. Wilson's cell was on the first floor of C Block, cell number two. He'd only been moved there two days earlier and was freed apparently by three masked men. A builder's ladder was used to get into the hospital located next to the prison. Then, using a rope ladder, the men scaled the wall and knocked out one of the patrolling officers, William Nichols. The guard lay unconscious for 20 minutes, but Wilson and his liberators were away in the night, the whole operation taking a total of 15 minutes. There was no explanation, well at least from the prison, of how a master key had been made in order to free Wilson. It was assumed that a guard had been bribed to make a copy. In total, all 120 prison officers and the governor, plus all of the civilian staff, were interviewed. Speculation was rife that the kidnapping, for it was more a kidnapping than an escape, was executed in order for some financial reward from Wilson. As a result, other gang members began to receive tougher treatment in their respective prisons and most of them started to look at other ways of escaping. Five days after Wilson's escape, plans for Gordon Goody's attempt to escape from Strangeways in Manchester was uncovered. The following day, John Maris, the herdsman who had alerted police to the location of Leverslade Farm, was awarded £10,000 as a reward from the Midland Bank. 
Far more than the driver and the fireman, Whitby and Mills, or anyone else for that matter, would receive. Whitby would receive £250 the following January from Tony Benn, the Postmaster General, and a further £250 reward from the clearing banks. 1964 came to an end with a general election in October, resulting in the first Labour government in 13 years with Harold Wilson as Prime Minister. In Mexico, bizarrely, Bruce Reynolds received an invitation from the British Embassy to meet Prince Philip, which he politely declined. The House of Commons voted to abolish the death penalty for murder, and the Beatles were the top of the charts with I Feel Fine. In 1965, in March, Charlie Wilson made his way to the south of France after lying low in Knightsbridge for six months following his escape from prison. And on the 8th of July, events would unfold that would ensure that the Great Train robbery would be kept on the front pages and in TV news reports for nearly 50 years. At Wandsworth Prison, Ronnie Biggs made his escape with a little bit of help from the outside world. Just after 3pm, whilst Ronnie was in the exercise yard, a red lorry pulled up and parked outside the outside prison wall. A rope ladder was thrown over and Ronnie Biggs made his escape with Eric Flower. Throughout July, the hunt for Biggs continued, with police searching the Surrey home of Prince Carol of Romania at one point, believing him to be there. A cargo plane at London Airport was searched when police got a tip-off that Biggs was to be smuggled out of the country in a packing crate and so on. But to no avail, Biggs and Flower moved from Bermondsey to Camberwell to Putney, Richmond and Bognor Regis. All hiding places and transport provided by Freddie Foreman. Eventually, in October, Biggs and Flower arrived in Paris and, like Buster Edwards before them, underwent plastic surgery before making their way to Australia. It's also about this time that Buster Edwards and his family managed to fly out to Mexico and join Bruce Reynolds and his family. By the end of the year, they were joined briefly by Charlie Wilson, who had by now set up home with his family in Canada. Nineteen sixty six, the year of swinging London, the World Cup, and another general election with Harold Wilson as Prime Minister increasing the Labour majority to ninety six seats. And amongst the train robbers and their kith and kin, there was a lot of travelling this year. Goody, Wisby and James were transferred from HMP Durham to the maximum security block at Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight with Hussey and Cordry also transferred from Leicester. Bruce Reynolds and family travelled to Canada to visit Charlie Wilson, and Biggs and Flower moved from Sydney to Adelaide following fears that their mail was being intercepted. 
John Wheater became the first of the key names involved in the robbery to be released from prison legitimately this year, and Jimmy White was finally arrested in Kent. Six weeks after England's dramatic World Cup victory at Wembley, Buster Edwards and his family made their way back to England. Buster and June had had enough of life on the run and Buster returned to give himself up. Buster was eventually sentenced at December to 15 years, only half of what the other robbers received not two years earlier. Reynolds and family paid another visit to Charlie Wilson in Canada and decided that this is where they wanted to make their new home. Bruce's passport was in the name of Miller, but Francis and young Nick were officially registered with the surname Green. The only way around this would be to get new passports in Europe as a married couple with a son. The Reynolds flew to Brussels from America and for a short heart-stopping period of time they had to wait at London Airport briefly before continuing with their journey. In Brussels, they collected new passports in the name of George and Pauline Firth, and Nick now became Colin Firth. The origin of the urban legend that actor Colin Firth was somehow related to the great train robbers, of course, being untrue. But by April, the Reynolds decided that Canada was not right for them, and made their way back to the south of France, now in the names of George and Joyce Overton. Reynolds was down to his last £28,000 from the robbery, and word got back to him that Detective Chief Superintendent Butler was spending his holidays in Saint-Tropez and the neighbouring towns specifically looking for him. In May, the Biggsies moved again, this time to Melbourne. Brian Field was released, having been divorced by Karin, he eventually remarried and settled with his new wife in Cornwall. And before the year was out, the Reynolds moved yet again, but this time back to London. Initially so that young Nick could have an operation to have his tonsils removed, but also for Bruce to make plans for ways of earning some more money to top up his dwindling reserves. January 1968. Charlie Wilson was finally arrested in Canada by Detective Chief Superintendent Tommy Butler, supported by the Mounties. A Canadian court ruled that Wilson was an illegal immigrant and he was deported back to the UK. Meanwhile, acting on information found in Wilson's Canadian address, the police raided a pub in Kensington, just missing Bruce Reynolds by 10 minutes. That's it, thought Bruce. London certainly wasn't safe. So once again, the family moved, this time to Torquay. Bruce planned to spend the winter there before moving on again, this time possibly to Australia, not knowing that the Biggses were already there. Not before, just three days before the fifth anniversary of the robbery, he cheekily took his family to visit the Bridego Bridge, the scene of the robbery itself. But Reynolds' luck was not to last. On the 8th of November 1968, Reynolds was eventually arrested and two months later was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And as the 60s drew to a close, the start of the new decade would see two significant events in the tale of the Great Train Robbery. With the heat gradually increasing, Ronnie Biggs fled Australia to Brazil, and train driver Jack Mills passed away. Peter Fordham, who had written the book The Robber's Tale seven years earlier, revealed that Mills had told her years before that Mills had confirmed his main injury came from when he'd stumbled and hit his head on a ledge. 
Mills had also told Fordham that his pension had been threatened if he'd not made more during the trial and in interviews about the violence used towards him at the robbery. Only four months prior to his death, Mills had been given £34,000 after a public appeal went out. This was in response to the news that Charmian Biggs, Ronnie's wife, had sold her story to the press for 65000 Australian dollars. The Ronnie Biggs story would be kept in the public eye for a further 40 years as he evaded deportation from Brazil. Eventually returning in 2001, he remained in prison for eight years before dying just before Christmas 2009. At the time of this broadcast, only one of the known robbers is still alive. After a short illness, Bruce Reynolds died in February 2013. After serving his time in jail, Gordon Goody spent the rest of his life running a bar in Spain, and in September 2014, for the first time, he revealed the name of the Ulsterman as Patrick McKenna, who himself had died some years earlier. Goody died at the age of 85 in 2016. After his prison sentence, Charlie Wilson returned to a life of crime and was found shot dead at his villa in Marbella in 1990. Buster Edwards became a flower seller outside Waterloo Station for many years before hanging himself in 1994. Roy James returned to motor racing following his release in 1975, but he never really achieved the success he so desired. He returned to prison briefly before dying of a heart attack in 1997, the youngest member of the gang and the fifth to die. Roger Caldry was the first of the robbers to be released and returned to being a florist after his share of the theft had almost entirely been recovered by the police. He died several years ago and his son Tony publicly confirmed that his dad had stated that Bill Bowl was innocent of any involvement in the robbery. John Daly, the bulk of whose share of the proceeds had been stolen or destroyed, went straight. He moved to Cornwall and became a street sweeper, working until the age of 70. Daly told no one about the robbery, as he was in fear that he may have to face a retrial at some point, and he died just six weeks after his brother-in-law, Bruce Reynolds. When Tommy Wisby was eventually released from prison, his brothers had been looking after his cash for him. He had a house in South London, plus a few other investments. Jim Hussey's share had been entrusted to his friend Frank Munro, who pretty much squandered the lot. Both Wisby and Hussey returned to their life of crime and were sentenced to 10 years and 7 years respectively for cocaine dealing in 1989. Wisby died in December 2016 and Hussey in 2012. Bob Welch, the last of those convicted in Aylesbury to be released, is the last of the known robbers to survive. But what of the unknowns? While there's been a lot of mystery surrounding several of the gang who were not imprisoned, in reality the police knew almost the entire gang almost instantly. By the 29th of August 1963, Commander Haveril had 14 names already. The Haveril list was unknowingly accurate. All the major gang members that were later jailed had been identified except Ronnie Biggs. With the exception of the minor accomplices, Lenny Field, Bill Bowl and the train driver, the list was complete, although of course the Ulsterman was not identified. In terms of the ones who got away, there were four others identified, Henry Smith, Dennis Pembroke, a fair-haired man, 25 years old, well-spoken, not named, 
and a nondescript man, not named but maybe Jimmy Collins. Both Piers Paul Reed and later Bruce Reynolds refer to the three robbers who got away as Bill Jennings, Alf Thomas and Frank Munro. Mr One may or may not have been a chap called Bill Jennings, or more commonly he was known as Flossie. He also took part in the Heathrow Airport raid and it's highly likely that he was the robber that struck the blow against driver Mills. There are also stories that Henry Thomas Smith or Harry Smith was Flossie and he was the man that managed to spend his share of the loot buying the 28 houses in the hotel and the drinking club in Portsmouth. There was Alf Thomas who was alleged to be one of the South Coast Raiders. He could possibly have been Mr Two or Mr Three depending on whose account you listen to. But then there's also stories that Alf Thomas was actually Dennis or Danny Pembroke. We'll never know. Was Frank Munro one of the gang? According to Bruce Reynolds, yes. And again, he was never caught. And finally, the replacement train driver brought on board by Ronnie Biggs. Alf, Stan, Wally, whoever he was, he was never caught and was never suspected of even existing by the police due to the fact that in the end, Jack Mills had to drive the train himself. He never even received the 20 grand promised to him by Ronnie Biggs. Both Jack Mills and David Whitby, the driver and the fireman, never recovered from their ordeal. Mills died in 1970 of leukaemia, and Whitby in 1972 of a heart attack aged just 34. And as for Bill Bowl, at the best was just a mere accomplice with no involvement in the actual robbery, he died in jail of cancer in 1970. The train, as we have learnt, was broken up for scrap in the 1980s. The Monopoly board, used by the gang at Leverslade Farm, along with a genuine £5 note from the robbery, is now on display at the Thames Valley Police Museum in Berkshire. And for quite a while, the scene of the crime, according to the Network Rail Maintenance sign, was called Train Robbers Bridge. There was an outcry advocating restoration of the original name of Bridego Bridge, but in late 2013 it was renamed again, this time as Mentmore Bridge. The official renaming is yet to occur as the network signage still says it is the Train Robbers Bridge. Over 50 years have passed since the train robbery. Was it worth it? Most of those that took part would definitely say no. Next time, why don't you join me as we jump forward to the end of the decade and tell the story of the darkest day in the history of rock and roll. It was supposed to be a free concert mirroring the peace and love vibes of Woodstock, but some say it was watched over by the devil himself. The Rolling Stones held court at a gig that witnessed the death of Meredith Hunter at the hands of the Hells Angels. See you next time for the story of Altamont. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast. Or take a look at the website at rainbowvalley.libsyn.com or subscribe to the show at iTunes. Send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Mm-hmm.